I'm going to see St. Joseph's Parish in San Mateo on a Sunday. I'm going to drive up and spend Sunday night in Santa Rosa with Mimi. So I'll see her. Good, good. We're, the, the one operative question today, I guess, is um, what do you want to do next, since this is the last chapter of 1 John? 2 John. 2 John and 3 John? Yeah. They're, they're not, they're, I mean, they're, they're okay. They're not as fun. <laughs> we could do that. We could That's just a say. funny thing to say. Do that. Let's go ahead and do that. Okay, that'll make it easy for me because I didn't want to have to think about it. John and third John. Done. 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 There's time of life when I don't want to sit and think about it. I've got, I got plenty of things to think about. So. Wait till you get older. So let's uh, actually let me get that. And then we'll start. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, just given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, here we are, John chapter, verse John 5. Um, so what are the themes we've been covering in John? What does John put particular emphasis on? Anything. I'm going to make you guys talk to it. It's like I talked I talked too much last time. You guys are going to have to, you guys are going to bring some game today and talk. Maybe Mary, and I'll pick on Mary. Now you pick one person I can kind of pick on. Remember this? So Mary, what's been the main theme? Some of the themes, we, we reviewed these. So what does John, how does John's gospel begin? And how did First John begin? Same, same focus, a certain doctrine. What's the doctrine? It begins with an I. Hey, Jack, you're... Incarnation. Incarnation. What does the incarnation mean? God in flesh. God in flesh. Very good. Incarnate. It's like chili con carne. You see in the in flesh. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, in John's gospel, he talks about the word was made flesh. And first John talks about that which was in the beginning, which we've seen with our you know, eyes, our hands have handled. So the incarnation that God has become man. And then related to that is what? How does, how, does, how does John present himself in relationship to the Incarnation? What is he? Uh, is the devil a witness? He's a witness. So he's a and and the thing that that, that when I wanted to, what I realized this time first John there's there's a series of logical things that flow from the Incarnation. This thing really happened. John bears witness of it. To whom does he bear witness? Oh. Like, yeah, the, the, the church to whom he's writing. Yeah. I brought this to you. And, and, and are they 
what does it take for them to receive his witness? What, what word would we use for that? Faith. 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 I believe witness. And then what happens in individual and community when they believe the witness? Persecuted. What's that? What's it create? Others. Huh? Others. Yeah, so uh, it creates a community now in whom, and we'll get this today, in whom then the spirit uh, dwells, and just as the word was made flesh in Christ, John bears witness. Now the word that he preaches to them as a witness, they receive, it comes to reside in them along with um, let me, uh, and then, um, and, and then what's the, re and the result of that is that, um, uh, the manifestation of the community is, how do we see that in the way people treat each other? What are they supposed to do? Love each other. Love each other. Yeah. So this is a logical sequence of things that John has hammered on in his own inimitable sort of sort of you know the, the word the language is is sometimes a little hard to grasp but that's basically this there's the incarnation there's his witness that he brought to the church that it's received by faith and that it's manifested in their love for each other and it's in their love for each other. That's what shows that they really believe this thing and that the witness is in them. So it's, at every stage, it's a tangible, it begins with a tangible reality of, of God becoming man, the word becoming flesh, and, it, and that the witness and the faith results in the tangible manifestation of love in a community. You're actually acting for the good of the other. And we talked about, we said that John was probably combating a certain kind of heretic. What do we call those kind of heretics? Gnostic heretics. And what was, what did the Gnostic heretics believe? They don't believe in the incarnation. Yeah, they didn't believe in the incarnation. They, they tended to believe that salvation was disembodied. How would you be saved then? Yeah, you'd be you're, you're, you maybe be sort of have the sort of spiritual sense of salvation. How did it relate to what you do in the body? You want to be free from the body. And so, how, what what if you have a, a sense of being saved because you've gotten some insight from a specific teacher? Um, being saved by that knowledge, that mental cognitive knowledge. What what impact would that have on your behavior? Well, you could have it could or have it or not, but it's it's not integral to it. You could just you know you could just have this this, uh, and I think this is where we can kind of get in our culture. The more generic spirituality ends up. Um, or even the once saved always saved sounds yeah. like a lot too. Like it doesn't like any any idea of having a kind of salvation that doesn't require an embodied expression in community is the kind of salvation that, that John is um, opposing here. Um, so, um, 
there's that. And the key, key words we've touched on, you know, are, are uh, the things he talks about, the incarnation, you know, come in the flesh, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, incarnation, witness, faith, and love. That John really, really works on. All right, let's just jump into First John five and talk our way through it a little bit. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. Now, so if if believers are begotten of God, is what he's saying, and then everybody who loves God will be love him who's begotten of him. So therefore, your love, our love for the brethren, in a in a complex way, John is saying, is proof that we love God. Because if you love God, you, you would love his children that he made in his image. And this incidentally is the root is the root of biblical morality. That that God created the world and then he made man in his image. And so if God makes people in his image, therefore your love for people in his image relates to whether you love God or not. And, and um, this is what's embedded in the, you know, in the in the framework of the Torah and the Ten Commandments. Um, why Jesus said, uh, extension of this, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He's not just making a brand new moral pronouncement. He's saying he's the Son of God, the true image of God. But love for every, especially the uh, brethren, he uses that word in a particular way, those who belong to the community of faith, that, that your love for uh, others is, is, is an indication of your love for him, which, um, again, really highlights the importance of how we love people in the church that we don't like very much. And the true measure of your love is if you're uncomfortable with someone or somebody is other than you and you don't like it. Well, we are other than God. We've sinned, but God sent his son to, to take those who are other than him, to die for them and to bring them into fellowship. So if we've experienced that in our own life, we have to have the willingness to go beyond our comfort zone to, to, you know, most, most pointedly in the community, but even beyond that, love, and that's mission, love for, for souls who, who, who would be in the kingdom. By this, and the verse 2 is kind of thick, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. We know our love for the brethren, the children of God, is legitimate when 
we're loving God and obeying his commandments. This might partly be, be dealt with as a kind of uh, maybe logic of motive. We can do good to people, but genuine agape for others comes out of our love for God and our desire to do what he tells us to do. That's why we love. And it's, it's why Christianity can never be reduced to mere philanthropy, where the, the um, people want to know just what the church is doing, you know, for people, how much money is giving away, and to measure the church entirely by that is false. Not only is it false uh, logically, it also doesn't, the more the church gets away from her worship of God, from her prayer, from her experience of communion, the less she will come to love. Because it is the experience of God's love in our prayer that naturally overflows into love for others. If we just start doing good works, divorced from our prayer and our love for God, they'll, first of all, the motives will decay. We'll do it to get our sign on the board or to say how much we're doing or we'll, we'll do it to manipulate into what we want. Then eventually we'll just we'll cease to love out of that grace that comes from God and, and, and be, it'll begin to become a lot more conditional. Verse 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In the um, Gospels, Jesus talked about how the Pharisees like to bind heavy burdens on people to make the commandments of God hard. Um, the commandments of God to love God, they're not a burden. They sometimes, we struggle to um, against the temptation not to do that. And that's part of the spiritual battle. But doing it is not really when we used to it. If we learn it's not a heavy, hard burden, it's it's simply natural for redeemed humanity. So, do you think that pressing Pharisaical type of? I don't think so because he's mostly doing the Gnostic thing. That was just kind of a related comment. Um, but I think he would say that, I think he's addressing more that uh, loving God and keeping his commandments is dealing with the Gnostic idea that we know God and his commandments may not matter so much. That, that, that the tangible expression of obedience in life is, is required as evidence of love. And John's saying these are not burdensome, but we have, but we have to do them. Don't listen to teachers who tell you, you know, they're saved and they, you've got, you've got this thing, but you don't actually have to have to do what Jesus said and you have to love people. Or, um. That word is intellect, the Greek word, so it's like in his telos. So I always just think like, keep walking in my telos, in, and I heard the song this morning. I was thinking that way. It's 
I think the other point of this that maybe that gets back to the communal dimension is one of the things that John had said in the previous chapter, if, um, you know, if they had been others, they would not have got, they would not have gone out from us. So part of God's, the commandment is that we love in community, that we stay in relationship, we work out the dynamics of love. And so that's the commandment, that you love one another. Don't run away from the community of faith. And um, whereas, the, as, as we see this in, in Gnostic expressions of salvation or a culture, they almost always tend to be, you know, anti-communal. I'm going to do my own thing. I don't think I need to go to church. And if you talk about church as kind of like a... a, a, a um, talk on a resume, you know, yeah, I went to church. I mean, that's not what, that's, but being in the community, in, in the Eucharist, the, the Eucharist makes the community what it is because we, who are many, become one because we eat of the one bread of life. And then the manifestation of that is in the way we love one another. And to run away from either of those is really to depart from what John's talking about. And to go off, and, and, and that's where we get into, into sort of, problematic understandings of the faith. Verse 4. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Now, we remember when we read... um, Revelation that um, here's, for example, Revelation chapter two, verse eleven, from the church to to, to uh, Smyrna. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. And then there were, in, in each church, there was something like that. Um, verse 26 of chapter 2. He who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. So this word overcomes is a, is a constant, and it, it, again, it comes this word, Nike, uh, conquer, victory. And, and so he's, John is saying, our, our victory is our faith. Now, I, I, in, in this milieu of John's gospel, right, John's writings, I think there's a significant um, image of this conquest, which is the Easter image. Um, how does Jesus appear on Easter night in John's gospel? What does he say? So let, let me read, let me just read it to you because that's an obscure question out of context. Um, the same day, this is Easter day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said these, he showed them his hands and his side. 
Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace to you. Now, and then he goes on when he says, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And this is where he says, If you forgive the sins of enemy, are forgiven. If you retain the sins of enemy, are retained. But the main image I want to focus on is Easter night, Jesus showing up with his scars, saying, Peace. So when John says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith, it's our faith in Jesus, having conquered by his death, that conquers the world with Jesus. Because Jesus' Easter image here is, the world has has apparently defeated him on the cross, but he appears on Easter as a conqueror. So in our trials of faith, we can as we hold on to Jesus in the midst of them, um, that we already have this victory. We know we're going to win. And it's our faith. It's our, our trust in, in him that, that brings us that victory. It's actually literally, um, in my translation, has this is a victory that has overcome it's literally a past tense verb there, though, in the original Greek, where it says, this is Victor that overcame the world. And he's thinking specifically of Jesus' conquest on the cross and resurrection, a moment of victory. But he's saying your faith, your trust in that, which endures in you, but it's, it's, some, it's, a, it's, it's, that, it's, that, it's that coming, and, and, and especially thinking of baptism, where this moment of connection with that, so we conquered the world. And this is the this is the I, the the, uh, the sense we should carry around in life with us as we face our own crosses. That we hold on to Jesus, our prayer. We persevere in faithfulness and obedience. And when that happens, nothing can take away that connection. And we were assured we're going to stand with Jesus. The main danger is distraction, being pulled away, giving up. But not the main danger is not the trial itself, which has already been conquered in us because because of our faith. And also assimilate the peace that comes from it. Jesus, peace. I think that's right. Now, and and I, I would think that the the idea of of the life of prayer that we emphasize so consistently has to do with the idea that peace is not an idea. Peace is an experience that as we live through the turmoil of life and bring that into our prayer, to the altar on Sunday, to the morning prayer, to the evening prayer, to the constant sense of God's presence, there is a sense of peace in the midst that we develop where we understand, yeah, this is a hard thing, but I know Christ is with me. So we have a peace. In the world you will have tribulation, he said in John's Gospel, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. I've conquered the world. And we, by our faith, have conquered these things with him. That's, that's kind of the idea there. But that Easter image of Jesus standing with the scars that, that all the things that we face are, are, going, are going to have that relationship to, to, our, to our resurrection at the end. 
they will all be the things we've offered to say. Verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Now, here is probably also a rejoinder to the Gnostics. Because Gnostic heretics, ancient and modern, would all be in favor of the epiphany of baptism, the water. Immerse the water, this is my beloved son, the spirit whom I'm well pleased. Okay, he's the son of God. But they work so into the blood, dying on the cross, the idea that God actually died for sin. So the Gnostic heretics he's dealing with are into the, the, the sort of illumination of baptism but not to, not to the, the idea that, that there's sin in us that he had to die for and that, and that we have to believe in in order to be cleansed of sin because Gnostics would tend to, to, tend to, to disbelieve in the idea of sin the way that, 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 that the New Testament presented. So that's why he says he came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is truth. Now, we should note here that if you're following along as, as, as and reading in like the New King James Version of, of the Bible, following the King James Version, that verse 7 doesn't appear in most other Bibles. There's a, a verse that almost everyone thinks was added later and is called the Johannine Sentence. And it says... For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit, and these three are one. A lot, most of the good manuscripts don't have that verse in it. So it's likely someone copying later on tried to, you know, die. It, it's nothing wrong with that theology. Because certainly there are three that bear witness in heaven, you know, the, the, the Father, uh, the Word, and the Spirit. But it probably wasn't. So, so if, if you have a new King James you have that verse, that verse that even when we read, even when we read this uh, as the epistle from the prayer book, that verse is left out. So, but you be aware, it's called the Johannine sentence in the scholarly. Um, Johannine sentence? Sentence. So, so we will go. Yeah, what does Johannine mean? Johanni, John, John Lyser, John Lyser. Question. Yes, Question. Question. Is there a particular reason why it's left out? Okay. I'm sorry, Ed. Say again. Yes. Is there a particular reason why it's left out? Yes, because um, when you're there's a whole realm of Bible study called textual criticism, and that means that um, uh, there are different manuscripts of the Bible, and this is something we don't want to get into, a, a, but, but there are, uh, so we don't have any manuscripts of the Bible that date from the first century, or the second century, or the third century. All the manuscripts we have are 
have been found and 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 translated. And there are sort of schools of textual tradition that are compared. And most of the m- most recognized um, uh, manuscripts that have come down to us don't have this verse in it. Only, only one, only a rare manuscript has that verse in it. That's why it's usually left out of most modern translations due to that modern textual criticism. That answer the question, Ed? So it goes from, and the spirit who bear, is the spirit who bears witness because the spirit is true. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. So, let's, so and, and remember that um, this idea of witness has been really important to John, right? John is a witness, a faithful witness. In John's gospel, this, this witness language is really big also. And he's, it really is rooted in Judaism and the courtroom. By the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. And if you're going to convict someone of a, of a crime, you got to bring a couple witnesses. And in the, in the Torah justice, if you're going to accuse and, and proclaim someone guilty of a capital crime, you had to have witnesses who were willing to throw the first stone. So when he, this two or three witnesses here is, and this, there's a whole passage in the gospel where, where Jesus talks about the witnesses of being John the Baptist, being um, the spirit who descended of his baptism, um, being, you know, the works that he does testify so that, so that if, um, if God the Father is sitting in judgment and you're being tried on the basis of why don't you believe, he would say, well, the evidence is, you know, this was given to you, and this was given to you, and this was given to you. So your your lack of faith would therefore be culpable if you rejected faithful witness. And that's the, that's the logic of this. So the spirit, the water, and the blood. We talked about the water. The water would be the water of Jesus' baptism, the water of our own baptisms, the blood of Christ, uh, and also the spirit, which is the internal um, motive of, of the spirit. Um, that, for example, um, I was going to look at a um, passage in Romans here that um, that is significant. Um, In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, um, and this gets back to the idea of the word begotten of God. He says, um, 8.15, Romans 8.15, You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the idea is the spirit within us enables us to make the confession that God is our Father, because because the seed of of God is in us, 
that gives us the ability to say, Abba, Father. And then he says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So this is an internal testimony to us that we that, that the Spirit gives us that we are children of God. Back to your point about Jesus revealing himself today. That was when the Spirit was sending on the disciples and their eyes were open. Prior to that, they didn't necessarily believe it. Right. There, there are different witnesses um, in the different ways of describing this event in the different Gospels. In Luke's Gospel, um, he says that that he opened their understanding they might comprehend the Scriptures. In John's Gospel, um, he shows them this evidence, um, and then Thomas, who doesn't believe, comes by a week later. In John's Gospel, he says, receive the Holy Spirit who sends you you forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you retain, they are retained. This is usually understood as something different than the more general Pentecostal gift, which comes on Pentecost 40 days later. This is seen as the apostolic gift of witness that comes with it, the authoritative pronouncement of forgiveness. So as they go out, so they receive the Spirit that enables them to be faithful witnesses. And as they go out and say, as John is doing this community, you know, we have seen, we've touched, we're telling you. And when they receive this witness, therefore John could say your sins are forgiven as a representative in the same way that Jesus told them their sins were forgiven. So so this spirit in, in the resurrection account of John is in the church typically seen as, historically, as, as the apostolic authority to proclaim forgiveness. And it's usually associated uh, with the reality of baptism. How do we know that um, from our creeds? What do we say in the creed? I believe in one baptism for, for the remission of sins. So, so but it, it came with the apostolic witness that your sins are forgiven. The idea of, of of confession, of, of the authority of absolution and confession is highly related to baptism because it's the restoration of baptismal grace. If we digress and, and pull away from that relationship, therefore the, the grace of authoritative forgiveness, you know, brings us back into that relationship. Any thoughts or questions about that? I'll make sure people can respond to that. So, um, the Spirit, there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and they agree. So there are three faithful witnesses, and therefore your failure to receive their testimony is culpable. That's That's behind this is that Jewish logic. Um, you remember um, in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man's in Hades, and he says, send Lazarus, because they, um, you know, then they'll believe. 
And what does is, what is God, uh, God say? He says, they, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They've had the witness, and they're not listening. Therefore, they are culpable. And this is, this is the important thing about the preaching of the word of God. And sometimes we can, get, we can get it wrong, like, I have to convince you. That's never the idea. What, 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 what the, 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 the role of witness, whether it be each of you in your lives, whether it even be a you know, proclamation and liturgy, is to faithfully proclaim and let God do the work, which is always a threefold work. Some reject it, some accept it, and some don't really care. You look at when St. Paul goes and preaches the gospel in the churches in, in Asia Minor in Acts, goes to the synagogue, says Jesus is Lord, some believe and form the church, some want to stone or run out of town, some people says we'll think about it. But St. Paul always feels like if he has been a faithful witness, he can move on, he's done what he's supposed to do. This is why we have to be careful not to think it's our job to make people understand. That expresses our own inner insecurity, our need to have people get it, and that's it. Sh- it is not it's not a difficult witness, sense of witness. So let me ask another question. Um, for observation, that witness the three witness that John used. Yeah, I, I don't know that here, uh, uh, spirit, water, spirit, blood, is more, I think it comes more from the two or three witnesses of... It, well, it, it, could, it could be. I mean, I don't, I don't have a logical connection of like each one of those to one of the persons of the Trinity. Yeah, but if we just happen. heard like it's a tripartite witness, that would make some sense. Yeah. Um, I, I would suppose that um, in terms of the Trinity, the, the basic witness um, that we would associate with each person would be God the Father beyond understanding would be witnessed in the grandeur of creation that is so so huge. God the Son, through whom God's unknowable grandeur takes on particular form, is known through the revelation that comes down to us in, in the biblical word and, 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 and to us. And then God the Spirit is the individual speaking of the Spirit to your heart. There's a threefold thing there. So that's how I'd kind of I'd work it out as a Trinitarian way. So verse 9, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. So if two or three witnesses are okay in the human courtroom, God's witness is more significant. We're saying if the witness of men, if we receive the witness of men, that is, if we go to court and two or three witnesses can convict somebody, then the witness of God is greater. If he gives us two or three witnesses, we really need to listen. Are false witnesses? 
But yeah, and human beings could do that. You could have you witness if you received human witness. But I see why he's emphasizing that so much. If people will really keep trying to honor that, then Joe and Jesus will be able to do that. Yeah. 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 I'm not instilled in not being Well, and I think this, this you, you're getting at kind of a principle of spiritual life there, that um, once you receive the witness in yourself, so that you're able to see yourself as you really are, you say we have no sin to deceive ourselves, we acknowledge our own disorder, we accept the conviction, the, the cleansing power, then we will probably begin to project that on unto others. Don't you see and, and come and we, we'll look at them sympathetically. But if we don't receive the witness, we deny our own sin, we'll tend to see the problem in someone else. We'll tend to defend ourselves against you know, conviction by trying to make it your fault. And that's why it, it, that's because it, you know so so it is it is this there is this connection I think between the way we receive the witness and how faithful we can be a witness to others. It, yeah, it's also a protection. Us the that witness in others, not false witnesses, and identify that. And in, in, in general, it's a good thing to know um, cell phone ministry, what people tend to criticize a lot, um, that highly critical people typically project that when people are highly critical of others are usually very full of self-doubt and loathing that they're not willing to deal with, so they push it out here. You commit like that. That's the... That's the that's so... It's, it's, it doesn't make it any less painful in the moment when somebody accuses you of something, but upon further reflection, you can realize because people who who are are self-reflective, when they confront this, they will they will do it with a spirit of uh, compassion and fellowship. They they will say, "Hey, you might I think you you might look at this," because because um, they will do it out of humility. If they don't do that humility, it probably shows they don't really get it. All right, let's move on here to. Uh, so he, he who believes, so this is the witness God is, of which God has testified to His Son to finish verse nine, which is that He is the Son of God. He's given these evidences. So verse ten, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. That means he's linking here, believing the Son of God, with the Spirit and the Word, which come to indwell us through faith. We, so the witness becomes interior. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. It's interesting here that this ties into John's Gospel, where um, Jesus calls the devil a liar because he rejects the witness of God in creation. He doesn't like what God is doing, and he rejects it. And so um, when we reject the witness, we become, we become liars. 
Because why? Because we call, we say God is false. And it's interesting here because he says, he who believes has the witness in himself, and that witness is the spirit. We just read a passage of, of Matthew's gospel in evening prayer where it talks about the unforgivable sin. Whoever utters a word against the Son of Man, he'll be forgiven. Whoever utters blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. That's to reject the personal testimony that's coming to you through the Spirit. And to reject that is to call God a liar. And if you persevere in that, it doesn't mean, you know, you can... You know, so that, that's, that's how that dynamic plays itself out. He does not believe God has made him a liar because he does not believe the testimony that God has given of his son. And this is the testimony that God has given us of his son. Or this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, it dawned on me this morning, uh, looking at this, that this while this is a very particular New Testament proclamation, it really relates right back to the original creation. How did God create in the beginning? Oh, his word. So the only thing that received life was that which God spoke through his word. And what God spoke through his word was created through his spirit. So now, in the New Testament, God has uh, spoken through his Son. And in order to have life, we have to receive that word that comes into the Son. And then when we receive that word, the Spirit then gives us life. But if we reject that which God has spoken, we can't have life. And, and this is usually... The objection to this is the idea is is really a rejection of exclusivity of the gospel. Well, what about all these other people? And this is not a a passage that causes us to pass judgment on how God might be working somewhere. It is to say that there is no life apart from the cross of our Lord. How God communicates that to people in situations where maybe they haven't heard him, or although it's decreasingly the case in where we live in, I don't know. So I still need you to explain the passage in Matthew. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, just talking about, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. Well, I mean, it's the way of like, you could, you could, you could like, in gossip, you just read about some guy, and yeah, he's, and you, you, you utter a word against somebody you only have a casual acquaintance with because you associate him with something uh, and you don't really know. But blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whereas these people in that story were watching the Holy Spirit work in these miracles, and they're rejecting the testimony. And, 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 and I would say if that... If they persevere in that without a, a severe, that's a, that's you can't be you can't because you're not receiving the testimony. So that logical conclusion to that, we receive our faith through the Holy Spirit. 
Well, believing the word opens us up to receiving the spirit. That's the idea. It is faith in the word that, but you could, but the mere uttering of a blasphemy or a negative word against Jesus, whom you don't know, is different than rejecting the testimony of the spirit that you see personally in your life. I think that's all Jesus is saying. Chuck, may I ask a question? Please. So would you say that it's like over a lifetime a person continually rejects when God shows him or speaks to them that over time, it's not just one thing in time, but a series of rejection? I think that's right. I think there's also a, so we don't want to oversimplify the process of conversion by, you know, making too much of a fairly binary verse here. The reality is if we came to faith, we probably wrestled with it. You know, I remember my own life wrestling with it, kind of pushing it away, not wanting to hear it, having it come back and go back and forth and gradually, you know, giving up my resistance to hearing what was being said and coming to faith. So that's different than an out, you know, a final kind of no, I just don't believe. And I think what Connie raises, you know, so somebody who would just inalterably and vociferously oppose, can they change? Well, let's take a brief peek at St. Paul, who was instrumental in the persecution of Christians, blaspheming the name, and then he comes to a place. So we can't say that that unforgivable sin has been for sure committed by anyone who still has an opportunity to repent and change the mind. That's different than one saved always. Yes, it's very different. And you could also have a moment of appearing to come to faith, but that faith gets tested, and then you move away from it. And in that case, it would show that your faith wasn't authentic. It was that fake faith referred to in the parable of the sower and the seed, that belief for a while, but in time of temptation, fall away. Why genuine faith always has the characteristic of perseverance. So these things I've written to you, verse 13, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, understand that. Not that you'll go to heaven when you die. Not that once, you know, in the future, but right now you possess eternal life. And that's how we have joy in the middle of our tribulations. Why? Because we have this life that transcends the thing we're going through. And that you may, and the second part of that verse, and that you may continue to believe. That's actually, that's a supplied word to make sense of the meaning. That you may believe in the name of the Son of God. But continue to believe. So the idea is that 
He is giving you this encouragement so that you may know that based on the on what Jesus has done and you're accepting it in faith in the past, you have life. And he's also writing so that you will continue in this faith. You won't you won't just be something you once believed you gave up on. So that you, you know you have it and that you continue to hold on to it. Yes, that's the idea. Now, verse 14, and this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. Now, this is something that Jesus also promises in, in John's Gospel. If you ask anything in my name, I'll give it. But we, we should note, just in the larger framework of the Bible, that there's um, this can't be turned into, okay, God, give me you know five million dollars, get it. That that it, it's it's um, it has to be prayer that we offer in genuine faith. In John's Gospel, Jesus Jesus said. Uh, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll ask what you will and I'll do it. So we have to live in this relationship with God. Um, we're also told by Jesus that for us to be in a relationship, we have to forgive others. That, that the lack of forgiveness is a barrier to faith. Um, so, if we're living a life of prayer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us and cleansing us of our sin. We're out of that grace we experience forgiving others. It will purify both our, 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 our own selves and also what we pray for. So that it's, it's really not possible for someone who is abiding in Christ in a, in a, in a deep way to think of, of God then to reduce God back to like an infantile give me this, give me that, but we'll always see life in terms of what God is doing. And the more we grow, the more we realize we'd rather have an increase in, in spiritual strength, an increase in wisdom, an increase in faith, and not just stuff. And so, um, and James has a passage where he says, um, you ask and do not receive because you ask to, to, to have your, to fill your passions, your, you just, you, 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 you know, so so that that the power of prayer is real, but it is God, the ability God gives us in relationship with Him to desire things that we can ask for that God means to give us. <clears throat> but if, if we're desiring things that are not our genuine and true desire that will really fulfill us, that just shows that we're not in that space of abiding with Him. The other thing about prayer that's significant, and I think this is what's most often missed, is the time element of it. That um, the power of prayer, in my experience, is, is seen in persevering in prayer over time. So you might say, I want this thing. And you have this conversation. And God may come back to you and, and, and realize, well, then you have to we have to do this in your life. Come to a place. Um, 
you, you take, for, and there might be like a, a purification of humility. You think like the woman of Canaan who said, heal my daughter. He said, did the same thing. She kept coming in prayer, ultimately in a place of complete surrender and got her desire. I, I gave a story at the mission retreat about how, um, you know, I prayed at St. Matthew's the time I got here in 1986 uh, for God to send us younger mission-minded people. And I think that prayer was answered with a kind of seriousness about 15 to 18 years later. And I think what God had to do was, first of all, do you really want this? Are you going to pray for a week and have it go away? And if you do, okay, the church is going to have to develop into a community that can support and minister to those people you want to have. Yeah, develop me, too. too. I had to get my butt kicked for a decade. I was ready. So, but think about this when you want something. It's like when a child asks a parent, I want this. Oh, you're okay here. You say, oh, okay, she won. You want that. All right, well, let's... Let's see, let's see how we need to form your life in such a way that you're ready to receive it. But I think embedded in this whole framework is the idea that God places desires within us that he wants to fulfill. And our prayer is a, way, a means of conversation where he means to bring us along to a place where he can actually fulfill it. But we have to persevere in prayer and self-reflection to be ready to receive it. And if we if we reduce it to me, like, I want this, so oh, God didn't give it to me, we're like a spoiled kid. And, and any parent knows, no, I would have given it to you. You just needed to stay in the path of getting what you want. And Jesus said, if, if, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Heavenly Father you know, know how to give good things to those who ask him? So this is the contours of our prayer to think about. But it's real. It's powerful. But it takes perseverance and and self-reflection and long-term thinking. All right. If anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those not who commit a sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. Um, the point here is that um, the sin, not the mortal sin, and sin not leading to death. The clear point here is if you see a brother sinning, the word brother is used there, brother or sister in the community. You pray for them, and we assume, hey, this is what you're doing wrong. Presumably, also talk to them that there can be forgiveness and restoration. But mortal sin is to reject Jesus as the Son of God and reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit. And John says, I don't, I don't say you should pray for that. You can pray for them to be, their eyes to be open and them to see, but you can't get forgiveness for someone who rejects the testimony. That's the idea. We know that whoever is born of God does not sin. This means does not continue in the practice of sin. It doesn't mean doesn't occasionally out of weakness fall into incidental sin. 
But he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. And this is part of the idea of continuing in prayer, is that prayerfulness, the cultivation of union with God, protects us against temptation and falling into sin. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding. We may know him who is true, but we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. And here probably isn't John thinking about go, you know, the little idols you'd go worship at the pagan temple, but keep yourselves from false gods. Stay connected to the one true God. And, um, and it, that ties back to um, the whole world lies in the sway of the, of the evil one. That, um, and actually gets back to John's point about community. It is really in our prayer, in community, that we find protection from the souls of the evil one, which much more susceptible both to the temptation itself and also to the enduring feelings of guilt and alienation when we stay off here all by ourselves. The more we hang out in the community and are connected here, the more we have this kind of communion and fellowship, which actually we understand is better than that thing over there, so we're protected from it. But the more we isolate, the more we, we can fall into that. So. It, this doesn't mean, you know, that everyone needs to be in a, in a big group all the time, but the connection to the body and having significant relationships in the body you know, are, it's important to our faith. We're not meant to live all by ourselves. Personality type-wise, some people are more extroverted, they like the group, some people are more introverted, they like to be alone, but even liking to be alone and having your fellowship in the church, your connection be in more, you know, different kinds of ways, everybody still needs the body. Everybody still needs to be connected. And so you have to figure out how to work that out for your own life. All right, there we are. There's first John. We'll go to second John next time. And uh, maybe, um, well, you can read second and, and third John. And if we just do second, then we'll do two weeks with it. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. The Lord, make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us give us peace this day and forevermore. Do you have you here? Good online crew today. We have about 10. More, more online than here. Good to see y'all. We're saving gas. <laughs> Cheryl. Yeah. Yeah, Cheryl, yeah, bi-located. She did half here, half there. I got to take my kid to school, so I don't want to miss being present. Thank you. Bye, Mimi. Where does Mimi live? She lives in Santa Rosa. How long does she live there? Right? Five years or so. Five, maybe more years, that's more than that. I, I, I'm bad with time. It's been a while. I just know that. <laughs>